we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And we have as our guest this week, Leo Banks, who's a writer in Arizona, a novelist, but also a freelance journalist, and has written about border issues on and off for a long time. And the thing that led me to think of inviting him to the podcast was a long piece he'd written for Tucson Weekly recently on what's going on at the border. So, Leo, thanks for joining us. And if you could just give us a little sort of background, you didn't start out in Arizona. How'd you get there and why is the border interest you? How'd you get to writing about it? Yeah, I grew up in Boston, came to Arizona for graduate school way back when, and got a job at the local paper, the Arizona Daily Star, worked there for seven years and then became a freelance writer. I spent a lot of time working for a publication called Arizona Highways, which is sort of a travel magazine, and we do historical stories and cultural stories about Arizona. So I'm very familiar with the state, very familiar with Southern Arizona, and I noticed these things happening, the problems with the illegal immigration, and nobody was really writing about it. At least in any sustained way, you'd have an occasional story about problems. But I kept encountering people who lived in Southern Arizona who were just really under siege. And most of them were in the backcountry, and nobody got out there to talk to them. I decided I'd do it. So I got in the car, (laughs) drove around to various places in Cochise County and the reservation and everywhere, and saw the problem, saw the size of the problem, and started writing about it. And now this was years ago when you wrote about it, when Arizona was kind of ground zero for the anarchic border. It's since then been eclipsed to some degree by. South Texas, which is where the focus of much of the current border disaster is. And there has been some talk about high levels of crossings and border incursions in the Yuma area, which is the western part of Arizona's border. But the piece you wrote recently in Tucson Weekly was about what the Border Patrol calls the Tucson sector, which is basically the eastern part of Arizona's border, which was the focal point of a lot of crossings before seems to have receded in importance to some degree, but now, at least from what you're finding, is a lot of these problems are back. What did you see when you wrote this recent piece? Yeah, the Tucson sector is not among the worst. That's, you know, Yuma, Laredo, Rio Grande Valley, and that area over in Texas. But compared to what? Arizona's still bad, and it's getting worse all the time. And Yuma, of course, the Yuma sector, has gotten a lot of publicity for the crossings there. They're just, the agents are just overwhelmed. I did a piece for the Wall Street Journal back in September that talked a little bit about what was going on in Yuma. And the sheriff there in Yuma County, Leon Wilmot, said that the gangs that control the border south of Yuma 
I'm making $16 million a week running people across the border. Yeah, and it's much lower risk than smuggling drugs, right? Yeah, and well, what these people do is they fly into Mexico and take a bus to the border south of Yuma and walk across the river. Right. And it's all controlled by the cartel. The cartel controls where they cross, when they cross, and Border Patrol's waiting for them on the other side to process them. And then while that's being done, of course, there's no agents on the border. I mean, none at some point and at some times. And they run drugs through those open areas. And the same thing is happening in the Tucson sector. The Tucson sector has a Facebook page. I look at it every morning. And this morning, it says that the sector encountered 112 migrants near San Miguel, which is, if you go like 70 miles southwest of Tucson, you come to the little border crossing town of Sassabee. Right. And all along Sassabee and west onto the reservation, the cartels are just sending people across the line kids and adults. And this group was 112 migrants in Central America. 70 of them were unaccompanied kids. And they shoot them across. Border Patrol then has to show up and process them. They bring in buses. They got to take them to a tent facility near Tucson. It takes forever. And when they do that, the border is effectively open. Right. Because the agents are all tied up. And it's a tactic. The agency calls it task saturation. The cartels just keep them busy processing the kids and they run whatever they want to run. And in the story, you cited some statistics about fentanyl related to this idea of task saturation, where they basically distract the Border Patrol, and then when the border's open, they move stuff across. The numbers you had cited from Pinal County, which is one county up from the border, is that correct? Yeah. That the sheriff said, in 2018, they seized no fentanyl pills, zero. In 2019, they seized 700 pills. In 2020, they seized 200,000 pills, so that's already a huge increase. And then in 2021, they seized 1.2 million fentanyl pills. So it's from zero to 1.2 million in three years. That really does underline how you know this weak border is allowing enormous crossings of drugs. Yeah, and fentanyl is just pure evil. The seizures of fentanyl in 2021 across the whole Southwest are up 134%. So it's pouring across. All the heroin's down 6%. Meth is up 7%, and cocaine is up 68%. Cocaine is making a comeback from the 70s and 80s out of Colombia. Interesting. But with fentanyl, it's just the precursor chemicals come from China and Germany. They come to Mexico. The cartels used to produce it in big warehouses. Mexican police got onto them, so they stopped that tactic. And what they do is they go into mountain sites, and they'll set up shop and produce the fentanyl for a day, pack up and leave, and go to another site before the law enforcement gets on them. What's interesting is that the trees around that site are all green, except right above it, where they're all dead from the fumes. (laughs) This stuff is so powerful. Sometimes they cut it with horse tranquilizer. It can be anything. They'll sprinkle some fentanyl in, they'll sprinkle some binder in, they got a pill press, and off they go. A DEA agent told me a little while back, if you think of the American penny, the Abraham Lincoln's image on the penny, right? if you were to put two milligrams of fentanyl on Abraham Lincoln's cheek, that can be a fatal dose. Wow. This stuff is just awful, and there's a lot of misconceptions about it. People think that if you smoke it, it's not going to kill you. So they'll take a, a sheet of aluminum foil, cigarette lighter underneath it, put a pill on the foil, heat it up, and the smoke rises, and they use a straw 
to inhale it, thinking that it won't kill them, but it will. Wow. And it's fast acting. It suppresses the respiratory system. So you find people with their, you know, sitting in their car with their heads against the steering wheel and they're gone. Wow. Wow. It's bad. Yeah. I mean, it does highlight the tie between controlling immigration and controlling drugs across the border, because it's not so much that the illegal aliens are bringing drugs, although there's some of that, but the main thing is that the Border Patrol, their job is to stop contraband from coming across the border. And if they're overwhelmed with one kind of contraband, illegal immigrants, the other kind then is able to come across essentially freely. Yeah, it's the same people. All those trails on the border, in Yuma as in the Tucson sector, the border on the south side is controlled by the gang. It used to be that if you were from Chiapas and you had a terrible life, you pack your bag and you come up and you just find a trail and walk across and it was easy. Right. But all of it now is controlled by the gangs. Nobody crosses without paying the boss that runs a particular trail. Trails are all bought and sold. The most violent group will win the fight to control the trail. And they charge an average of $8,000 per person to bring them across. Yeah, you were mentioning in the piece, the recent Tucson Weekly piece, about war for control among various cartel factions to control the different smuggling corridors. How does that work? I mean, does that overflow onto the Arizona side too? It has, yeah. One of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is the cartel violence in Sonora, in northern Sonora. Right, which is the... Mexican state opposite Arizona. Mexican state of Sonora. In 2021, there were 1,765 murders in Sonora. Right. That's a 20% increase from the year before. Hmm. There's also a lot of disappearances. People just, for whatever reason, get on the wrong side of one of the gangs, and they're gone. There's a group there called Searching Mothers of Sonora, and they've found 400 bodies in two years. Wow. I follow a website called Borderland Beat. It's kind of seat of the pants, but it's done by these guys that work on aliases. They have pen names, but they cover the drug war throughout Mexico and including Sonora. And Sonora has really had some bad violence in the past few months. Shoot out on the steps of the city hall in Wymouth. You know, in November, one cartel hitman killed, two civilians killed, three cartel members killed by cops when they tried to kidnap a person outside of a prosecutor's office in Magdalena de Quino which is not too far south of the border. Piquito right. is a little Sonoran town. Five bodies found there in October. Two of them were laid across the railroad tracks, and the train came on and beheaded them. Ooh. Ooh. So when Chapo Guzman was convicted in this country, that set off sort of a war for control of the Sinaloa cartel. The Sinaloa cartel is the primary one that moves stuff from Mexico north into the United States. Mm -hmm. So you've got factions of the Sinaloa cartel fighting it out just south of our border. And people say, well, it's, it's a foreign country. It's Mexico. Yeah, it's a foreign country, but it's the same neighborhood. So if you live within 20 miles, say, of the border, that stuff is of concern to you. Right. So we have along our border from Nogales to Sassabee, about a 40-mile stretch. And we've had there, as I mentioned in this piece, we've had a number of shooting episodes where uh, cartel people will shoot their enemies in Sonora, and those guys wounded will come across the line to seek medical care in the United States. Hmm, We've had Border Patrol shot at in various episodes. I know a, I won't mention names, but I know a rancher down there. He's out working one day, 
and he gets a call on his cell from a border patrol agent. He, the, the rancher is a couple of miles from the border. The border patrol agent is right on the border. Right. The agent says to the rancher, hey, I got a Mexican cowboy here who says he's got five of your pears, pears being a, a cow and her calf. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. drifted across, and he wants to give them back to you. So come on down. So the rancher goes down to talk to the cowboy. Well, the cowboy says, look, I'm happy to give them back to you, but if we get caught, doing that. The cartel's going to shoot me, and they're going to shoot you, because they control this area. And this guy the night before had been chased around on his ATV by the cartel members. They were looking for him. And so he wasn't involved in, in other words, no. he wasn't smuggling anything. He was just no, he's just, just working, watching the cattle. He's just a working cowboy. Wow. That's so they amazing. had to arrange a particular time and a particular date, and get arranged to get Border Patrol agents there to protect them. So the American rancher gets on his horse, goes down there, the Mexican cowboy gets on his horse and drives the cattle up, and they make the exchange. It was safe. It worked out fine. Right. But I get a call from them saying, okay, it's happening Tuesday. <laughs> we, we hope it goes right. Wow. If you live there, those are the kind of things that are happening. I had an email the other day from a lady. She's in her late 70s, and she lives probably, I think, about five miles from the border. The email says, I just looked at my nightstand and realized that now my necessary items are the usual lamp, book, reading light, Kleenex box, and a thirty-eight. Wow. Thanks, Biden. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. We went down, the center does an annual border tour. You've spoken to us at least once, maybe twice, I don't remember, on our border tours. But when we went down in 2012, we went to a couple of places right along the border. There's a wildlife refuge, Buenos Aires wildlife refuge, and there's uh-huh. a National Park or Monument. It's an organ pipe cactus. And both of those places, we went to the border, but we were only allowed to because there were restricted areas if we had armed escort. And so we had guys in long guns escorting us. But in both cases, the people in charge said, you know, it used to be a lot worse, but by 2012, it had actually, they still had those requirements of armed escorts, but it wasn't as bad as it had been before. So it looks like it's now gone back to being as bad as it had been before. Yeah, and it's highly organized. The gangs are highly organized. They're extremely adaptable. They have a corporate structure almost, Hmm. and they're extremely efficient in the business they do. They're willing to lose a certain amount of of drugs at the cost of doing business, but they're very good at what they do. And marijuana smuggling is way down. Interesting. It used to be the DEA's annual threat assessment says it's down something like 83% because of the legalization here. So instead of getting it illegally, you can go to the dispensary and get it. Right, yeah. Or the cartels grow it here in the United States. The car- or yeah. the cartels grow it here. Also, the cartels still move a little marijuana because they can undercut legal marijuana here. Interesting, interesting. But their main thing is other stuff now. It's uh, yeah, fentanyl and, that's and what part have of their adaptability. You know, marijuana stops being so profitable for them, so they move into fentanyl, which is you know, fentanyl, you, there's a stigma associated with a needle. Right. Using a needle and everything. Well, there isn't such a stigma with a pill. Right. And they're stamped, you know, with a number M30, and they look like real pharmaceuticals. So it's pretty insidious. Wow, interesting. You've observed this over the years. Do you think the border barriers, fences, walls, whatever you call them, have they been useful? Have they had any utility? I mean, what's your take yeah, on that? Yeah, but mainly what they do is they move traffic to where there isn't a wall. Right. And that's actually what they were intended to do. You mentioned Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge, which is 
southwest of Tucson, right along the border. They were getting clobbered for a while there, and they built a fence along that stretch of border, mm -hmm. and their problem stopped. Right. But the traffic didn't stop. A lot of it went around, either east or west. Downtown Nogales, for example, the border used to have a theory, uh, minutes, hours, days theory. And that was that if someone crosses the border downtown Nogales, they got minutes to apprehend them before they get into a car or a right. house and are gone. If they jump in the immediate outskirts of the border, you might have hours to get them. But if they jump way out in the national forest, east and west in Nogales, you've got days to work a group. Right. So that was what the wall was for, was to push those migrants out into the day's country. Sure. Where they could get them. And, you know, it's partly successful. When Border Patrol talks about a wall, though, they don't talk about simply a physical barrier. They talk about a wall system. And what right. they mean is a wall with a camera on it, with sensors on it, with an east-west road under the wall so they could patrol it, and also lighting so they could handle it at night. And that's what Trump was trying to build, particularly in that 40-mile stretch from Nogales to Sassabee. Mm -hmm. That kind of system. Well, when Biden came into office, he stopped the wall with his first day, I guess. And so what you have out there now is probably the worst of all worlds. You have this big, ugly thing with a bunch of openings, whole lots of openings along because it was never finished. And the material to finish it was all lying there out on the ground. But the work stopped. Yeah, I've seen that. We um, visited the border last fall in El Paso and part of New Mexico. And we saw some of those holes, those gaps in the walls left when Biden, on the day he was inaugurated, told the construction people to put the tools down and walk away. Yeah. And also big, big piles, like you said, of construction materials, of the wall units that they you know, put up and then they fill them with concrete and what have you. Supposedly, Biden administration has kind of relented and said, okay, they'll allow filling some of those gaps so that they're not so provocative, as it were. Have you seen any of that going on yet? Not yet, and don't hold your breath. I don't see that happening. I really don't. The engine of open borders, the whole open borders complex, if he starts to do that, is going to just rise up. Right. And, you know, speaking of that, remain in Mexico, right? Right. They're ordered to begin it again. I think they've begun it in El Paso and maybe a couple of other places. Well, they're going to begin it in Tucson. Here's what Tucson sector has been told. They're going to get 10 spots a day for remaining in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> in so, other words, if you get, what, 100 people seeking asylum in a day, 90 get to wait in the United States, only 10 get sent back to Mexico. It's totally a grudging, a right. grudging thing. Just for show, really. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting, interesting. Another thing that people talk about, and you also mentioned in your piece, is gotaways. It's not just generally people the Border Patrol missed, because obviously they're illegal immigrants who cross that nobody sees. But when they do estimates of gotaways, those are actually people, they have some evidence actually crossed. They may have photos, they may have something, footprints even, but the point is they didn't get them, but they know they crossed. What have you seen about the gotaway issue in Arizona? 400,000, according to Rodney Scott, the former Border Patrol head in 2021. Right. In Nogales, station now, and the Nogales station covers 26 miles of border, they're getting 100 gotaways a day. Wow. What is that, 3,000 a month, 36,000 a year? That's just in that 26-mile stretch. And these are the known unknowns, as it were, instead of the unknown unknowns, the people that they don't even have any oh, evidence yeah, crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are known gotaways. Right. 
and there's also unknown gotaways. Really strong situational awareness along the Nogales stretch, Mm -hmm. for example. They got a lot of cameras. They got cameras on the walls. They got integrated fixed towers. They got all sorts of things. So they see just about everything. So when they see a group, they'll see a group of 10, say, crossing out by Keno Springs, east of Nogales. They'll log that into the computer, GPS, and how many there are. They have five repeater channels and direct radio-to-radio channels. And now, with the current rush of people, all of those radios are buzzing nonstop. Okay. So they'll see a group out at Keno Springs of 10. They'll log it into the computer. Do they have guys to send, interdict? Maybe they do. Let's say they send them. But then the cameras keep buzzing, and there's another 10 over here, there's another 20 over here, there's another 20 over here. And these are people that they actually see on camera, right? and they log it in. But after a certain period of time passes, if they can't send people out to interdict that group, they're counted as gotaways. So these are real people. These aren't guesses. Right, right. And these are people who don't want to be caught. We don't know the names. We don't know where they are. We don't know who they are. But they're not turning themselves in. They're not turning themselves in. They're running for their lives. Right. So any thoughts, given your familiarity with the issue, any thoughts on what national policy might kind of changes would address this sort of thing? I mean, there's always going to be people wanting to smuggle drugs across the border or people wanting to cross illegally, but it doesn't have to be this bad. Any thoughts on how to rein it in a little bit? Do what Trump did. Yeah. Trump handed Biden a border that was looking pretty good, and he just opened it. You could do the same thing at John Ladd's place. You probably know John. Yes, I know John. He's a rancher right on the border. Right on the border in Cochise County. He's got 10 and a half miles. After Biden took office in the winter and spring of 21, John was getting 50 arrests a day on his land and 50 gotaways. That's an average. Wow. Those are average numbers. During Trump, he was getting 20 a month. Wow. It had just slowed to almost nothing. Right. So the point is it can be done. I mean, this isn't the weather or the tides. This is actually something that policy can affect. Absolutely. And think of the Democratic debate prior to the election when they all raised Hmm. their hand and said they'd offer health care to illegal aliens. Think of Biden promising to amnesty 11 million in his first 100 days. The rhetoric was also welcoming. He wanted them. Trump's rhetoric was exactly the opposite. And whether you argued that the wall worked or not, his rhetoric was don't come. Right, right. Interesting. And he meant it. One of our writers, Todd Benzman, spoke with a smuggler on the Mexican side. I think it was maybe in Ojinaga in West Texas. And this is early on in the Biden administration. And the smuggler, just casually, without prompting, he referred to Biden's approach to immigration as la invitacion, the invitation to illegal immigration. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing, not just in Texas, but in Arizona as well. Did you see those videos of Ortiz and Mallorcas? Oh, right. When they were talking to Border Patrol agents? Talking to Border Patrol agents. It is hard to overestimate how demoralized those guys are. I was talking to one just last week, long career, and he's retiring. And I asked why. And he said, and this really killed me, he said, they're not going to let us win. I feel powerless. No one is coming to help. There's nothing I can do, so it's time to go. Yeah. And that's going to take a long time to fix because, you know, when you're losing guys with a lot of field experience and you replace them, for instance, if there's a new administration with new guys, it takes quite a while for those people to be able to replicate that depth of experience. It takes will at the federal level. It takes will. Right. Trump, for all of his problems and everything, he had the will, he showed the will, and he didn't give up. Right. 
And of course, when a new administration comes in all down the line, you have people of the same philosophy, the same philosophical bent. So we had a case recently this agent was telling me about in north of Nogales, they have a checkpoint on I-19. A car pulls up to the checkpoint. Agents suspect something. They tell him to go to secondary. Instead of going there, he takes off. Short ways down the highway, the car catches fire. So the driver gets out and runs. The agents grab him, and the driver starts to shout, they're in the trunk, they're in the trunk. So the agents go back to the trunk of the car, and there's two illegal aliens in the trunk. And the car was fully involved with flames at that point, so these guys would have died. So Border Patrol puts together a case and sends it to the U.S. attorney. Against the guy driving the car? Against the guy driving the car. They think they have a good case because of this guy shouting, they're in the trunk. It's what's known in prosecutorial circles as an excited utterance. Yeah. In other words, that he knew? That he knew, and he was admitting it on the scene. Right, right, okay. So the case goes to the U.S. attorney. The U.S. attorney says, I can't prosecute this case because I can't prove that the car caught fire because he was failing to yield. That's kind of ridiculous. And the border guys go, what, what difference does it make why the car caught fire? Right. He's felony endangerment. He's fleeing from the cop. They had a whole host of charges. They wouldn't take wow, it. Wow, wow. Case goes to the county. The county, by that time, a lot of time had passed. The county attorney says, I'm not going to take it. It's stale. Right. So they, they walk away. Unbelievable. On that depressing note, just as a last question, you've been doing some journalism, but you said over the past few years you've been writing novels. It's not necessarily immigration-related, although if it is, tell us about that. But what have you been writing over the past few years? <laughs> I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I've always been a reader of novels, Raymond Chandler, all that, detective fiction. Right. So I just got to a certain point where I gave it a shot and published a couple of novels. They're mystery novels. They're set in southern Arizona. There's no specific border component, but it's part of the story, at least in some background. And, you know, we've had some success with them. So. What are the titles? First one is called Double Wide, mm-hmm. and it refers to a trailer park out in the desert west of Tucson named Double Wide. Right. And the second one is Champagne Cowboys. And they on uh, Amazon? Amazon, absolutely. I looked them up. The author is Leo Banks, and I appreciate it, Leo. Thanks for joining us, and we'll check back with you if something new and even more depressing happens in uh, (laughs) southern Arizona at the border. Thanks for having me, Thank you. Bye. And finally, I wanted to talk about something that related not to the border, but to interior enforcement, to the work that ICE does, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And this week, we had a couple of blog posts on a report that ICE released. Uh, They released it last week. And it was purported to be the long-awaited report on ICE's arrest and deportation activities, which up to now had always been released in December. So it was already months late. And there was increasing discontent in Congress about this because it's a congressionally required report. So they finally cooked up something to release. And it appears that even some people in Congress think that the report they got is the actual report that ICE had released in all prior years. And it turns out it wasn't. We had one blog post by John Fury on our staff, who was former chief of staff of ICE, so he knows about this. And it was titled, Biden administration still hiding ICE enforcement and removal report because the ICE report dealt with all the kinds of things that ICE does, 
including customs-related matters, because ICE has this, in my opinion, absurdly broad and unrelated portfolio. But what John did in his piece was actually reproduce the tables and graphs, some of them, from the earlier report about the 2020 activities that were absent, that were removed from the 2021 report, just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that they're simply not reporting, breakdowns of the different crimes that people who were arrested and deported committed, monthly data on how many deportations happened by month rather than just lumping it all together. Our other blog post on this was by Jessica Vaughn, entitled New ICE Report Touts Improved Enforcement Dash Until Compared to Last Year. And what she did is take the few numbers that they did give and compare those to the previous year, the 2020 numbers, but also teased out some of the numbers that ICE hid, basically, did not release because she was either able to extrapolate it from other sources or has some of the data from a Freedom of Information Act request. And we have some more requests in the pipeline to get a full picture. And basically what it amounts to is number of deportations aren't just down, which they are, and that was the headline in the news coverage. And that's true and that's important. But what the administration was trying to do is tout that there's an increased percentage of bad guys who are being deported in that much smaller number. But the fact is that the number of serious criminals who are being deported, even though they make up a larger percentage of the flow of people being deported, there are many fewer, thousands fewer felons and aggravated felons who were deported. So what the administration is trying to say is that we've deported a higher percentage of criminals than in the past. What they're not telling you is they deported a dramatically smaller number of criminals, fewer murderers, rapists, drug dealers, drunk drivers, all of that stuff. So this is of a piece with the administration's larger strategy on immigration and frankly on some other areas that are outside our purview to create a false narrative, not so much to lie, although maybe there's some of that as well, but to spin the results of their disastrous immigration policies in such a way as to make them seem successful or at least less disastrous than they really are. It's just not true, and it's relatively easy to see through this transparent attempt at spin. For those of you who are interested in learning more, if you go to our website, cis.org, on the blog, there's two blog posts, one by John Fury, one by Jessica Vaughn. They're their most recent ones. They'll be easy enough to find. That gives you a lot more detail on the administration's attempt to basically blow smoke on this issue of the, basically the collapse of interior immigration enforcement. If you're getting this podcast on any of the platforms that allows you to rate or review them, please do so. If you don't, feel free to just send me an email directly if you'd like, msk at cis.org with any suggestions, criticisms, compliments, what have you. And stay tuned for next week's episode 
of parsing immigration policy.